Thanks for coming this morning. I'm glad you're here, Hope. My name is Eli. I'm the discipleship minister here at our Ankeny campus. A um, couple weeks ago, we're a little bit late, but a couple of weeks ago, Punxsutawney Phil, the real one, didn't see his shadow and he predicted an early spring. So we're glad for that. I don't give him too much hard time. Like he's a wild animal and he has to predict the weather and most people can't even do that. So, you know, can you imagine where if your job, all of your work was double checked by a wild animal? Doesn't seem really that fair. Now in the movie, Punxsutawney Phil, um, Groundhog Day, Phil Connors plays a local TV weatherman where uh, he's sent to Punxsutawney to cover the events of Groundhog Day and he hates this assignment. He has to do it every year, Um, but they get snowed in by the blizzard that he failed to predict and he's stuck. And then starts waking up every day, and it's the exact same day. And he's the only one aware of it. Everybody else in town, for them, it's a brand new day. He is stuck in a perpetual time loop that he just can't get out of. And I wonder for how many of us in the room today that feels like our life. How many of us feel like every single day is pretty much the same? You know, we wake up at the same time, we go to work or school, and it's the exact same, and come home, same hobbies, our relationships are kind of stuck, we're stagnant, every day feels like Groundhog Day to us. I wonder if that's how some of us feel today. You know, how, how are you doing in the excitement department of life today? How, is your life exciting or does it feel like Groundhog Day? Let's, let's read this together on the screen. This is Jesus teaching in John chapter 10. Read this with me out loud. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Now, now all of us in the room have, have life. We, we, all, we are all physically, biologically alive. You're breathing in, breathing out. You're doing you know, the, the activities of a physical life. And what Jesus here is saying is if, if that's your only experience as a human being, you're just physically alive, then you are missing out on something. You're missing out on the reason why God created you. The, the abundance, the, the Greek word here for life, zoe, the, the spiritually exuberant life that Jesus has to offer for you, that you're not meant to go through life with every day feeling exactly the same. You're not meant to go through life bored and repetitious. There was a, a study that was done a few years ago, uh, published in 2009 in the Journal of Psychological Science. A uh, few researchers in Michigan, University of Michigan and Stony Brook, they wanted to, to research the effects of boredom on a marriage. Just boredom, nothing else. They wanted to focus on what would happen if we just looked at a marriage and and saw how boredom affected that relationship. And so what they did was they they recruited 123 couples in the Detroit area, signed them up to be a part of this study, and they, they followed them, interviewing them and building results and data from the day they got married, the day they signed their marriage certificate, all the way through 16 years of marriage. That's how long they took for this study to be completed, to build up enough information. And they finally published their results in 2009. And it's fascinating what they found. So early on in the study, when they were first married, they began asking questions like, how often in the last month do you feel like your marriage is just in a rut? And that was kind of the language they used. Or how frequently did you do something different with your spouse or try something new? And then later on in the study, they started asking the same couples, how often or how would you rate your satisfaction in your marriage? Or how close do you feel with your spouse? So these are pretty subjective questions, but over a long period of time, they were able to build an interesting formula. I don't understand the formula that they came up with. Maybe if you've got your PhD in psychology, this makes sense to you. But reading the results were fascinating. And here's what they found, that if, if by year seven in your marriage, you are consistently bored by your relationship, by year 16, you will be completely dissatisfied and disconnected from your significant other. Greater boredom in year seven predicted significantly less satisfaction at year 16. And this is just boredom. 
What I found interesting about this study is that they didn't actually ask any questions, uh, you know, about other relationship factors, the things that we typically think of can cause problems. They didn't ask about how your finance is doing. They didn't ask about any life circumstances, major life events or tragedies. They didn't even ask about conflict. You know, are you fighting with your spouse? All they focused on was, do you feel like you're in a rut and how satisfied are you? And over 16 years, they found that just boredom alone is enough to kill a relationship. 38 of the couples didn't even make it to 16 years of marriage. And I think that's interesting because often when we talk about relationships or love, and it doesn't even have to be a marital relationship, it can be your spiritual relationship with God, relationships with your friends, your family, your coworkers. We, we tend to think that if we can simply avoid conflict, right, we focus on conflict resolution or avoidance, we think that that might lead to a healthier marriage, right? That the equation is an absence of conflict equals a healthy relationship. But that's like saying that an absence of, of pain in my physical body equals a healthy physical body. But I know of people, and I'm sure you do too, who, you know, maybe didn't feel any symptoms or didn't have any pain, but they went in for a regular checkup at the doctor, found out they had a life-threatening illness. That's the thinking if you just think that avoiding conflict is the, is the solution for a healthy relationship. There's more to it than that. That boredom might actually be as much of a relationship killer as all-out conflict. Now, uh, Bill Murray's character in The Groundhog Day uh, experienced tremendous boredom. Every day was exactly the same, and uh, the, the movie, you know, comedically follows his attempt to just keep himself busy early on, just coming up with new hobbies and interests, becoming an expert, like ice sculptor, piano player, learning a new language, robbing an armored car, anything he could do to just keep himself busy and occupied. But what the filmmakers thought, and, and I think rightly so, is that with enough time on your hands, eventually you're going to want to, to develop human relationships. You're going to want to connect with people because that's how we're wired. And so Bill Murray's character begins fixating on building a relationship with his coworker named Rita. And the way he goes about this, because of his own dysfunctional uh, human understanding of how relationships work, he thinks that if he can manufacture connection based on learning likes and dislikes and interests, that that would be enough to cultivate a loving relationship. And so uh, repeatedly he learns the most he can about her and thinking that that would, would generate some kind of a relational connection. Uh, let's, let's take a look and see how that goes. Mm, this is wonderful. Sorry, can I tell you? Mm. How do you know so much about Punxsutawney? I've spent a lot of time here. Small town people are more real than down here. That's how I feel. Really? Would you like to try some white chocolate? Yuck. Don't make me sick. No white chocolate. There is something so familiar about this. Hmm? Do you ever have deja vu? Didn't you just ask me that? <laughs> what? I'm just amazed. And I'm not easily amazed. About what? How you can start a day with one kind of expectation and end up so completely different. Well, do you like the way this day is turning out? I like it very much. It's a perfect day. You couldn't have planned a day like this. Well, you can. It just takes an awful lot of work. Rocky Road? Oh, I love Rocky Road. Yeah, I thought so. You have to stay. Oh, no, really, Phil. I'm tired. We can see each other tomorrow. No. Tonight. Oh. It's gotta be tonight. No, Phil, really. <laughs> Come on, 
just stay for a while, and if you like it, stay for a while longer, and if you like it, stay for a while longer. Let's not spoil it, okay? Not spoil it. I don't want to spoil it either. You know I can't, I can't stay with you. Why not? I love you. You love me? I love you. You don't even know me. Oh, I, I know you. Oh, no. I can't believe I fell for this. This whole day has just been one long setup. No, it hasn't. And I hate fudge. Yuck. No white chocolate, no fudge. What are you doing? Are you making some kind of list or something? No. Did you call up my friends and ask them what I like and no. what I don't like? Is, no. Is this what love is for you? No, this is real. This is love. Stop saying that. You must be crazy. I could never love someone like you, Phil, because you'll never love anyone but yourself. That's not true. I don't even like myself. Give me another chance. Stop it! Is that what love is for you? That's what she asks him. And I wonder how you would answer that question. Is, is it learning as much as you can about somebody else? Just learning their likes and their dislikes, what, what they're interested in so you can kind of manufacture a relationship and have your selfish needs met? Is that what love is? Is it avoiding conflict? Is that the most that love is for you? Is love shaving off your epic beard to make your wife happy for Valentine's Day? I don't know. Oh, man. Love hurts. <laughs> what? Take it. Take it away. You can take. It. What is love for you? How would you answer that question? And in our scripture for today, we're we're in the middle of First uh, Corinthians, and it's a part of our year-long twelve books of the Bible in twelve months. And February for us has been First Corinthians, talking about this letter that that God inspired Paul to write to the church in Corinth. And we're unpacking it over this month, and, and today we're in chapter 13, which is a very well-known part of the Bible. Uh, it, it, you know, I've preached on it many times at different weddings, especially. I'm sure you've heard it there too. Um, but what's important to recognize about any letter, even a letter that we would write today, is that it's one long, continuous piece of work. You know, the, the chapters and verses, that, that got added later. When Paul wrote this, it was from beginning to end, just one long letter with a continuous strain of thought running throughout. And, and even in this section, 1 Corinthians chapter 13 is right in the middle of one big idea that Paul, the author, is actually trying to, to develop. And it starts in the beginning of chapter 12, and it doesn't finish. The idea, the thought, doesn't finish until the end of chapter 14. And so when we pull out just the middle of, of 1 Corinthians 13, uh, this, this beautiful definition of love, that it's patient, that it's kind, it's not jealous or boastful or proud, all we get if we pull it out of the larger idea is, is poetry. It's just nice sounding words about love, but it misses the context of all of the things that Paul is trying to develop as this idea, starting all the way back in chapter 12. And so that's what we want to do, unpacking this, how would we respond, or how does the Bible describe love? What is love in God's definition, the way that God sees it? And in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, if you weren't here last week or if you want to go online, you can watch Pastor Mike's sermon about that chapter. He did a great job. Uh, unpacking the idea that, that love does not exist in a vacuum. Love is not, 
is not something that's nebulous floating around us all the time or some kind of emotion. Love, and this is not some, this isn't a radical idea, love requires an object. It's a subject-object relationship. Love isn't something that you can just have without it going somewhere else, to someone or to something. You have to love someone else or something else for it to actually be love. It's not a, a nebulous thing. And in the context of, of 1 Corinthians, Paul writes about it as relationships in the community of the church. That the church is actually the place where love should exist in its most full form, in complete form. That all of us, and this is what Pastor Mike was preaching on last week, are a part of this body. The body of Christ is the metaphor Paul uses, that when all the parts come together in love, in community, they form the church. And if we don't love each other, if we don't get along, then we're not really the church. We're just individuals doing church things, but we're not loving each other in a community. And that's what, that's what chapter 12 is all about, that love exists in community. And this is how it, uh, it describes it in verse 24. So if you have your Bibles, you can open to 1 Corinthians 12. Verse 24 says this, so God has put the body together. God has put the body together such that extra honor and care are given to those parts that have less dignity. This makes for harmony among the members so that all the members care for each other. If one part suffers, all the parts suffer with it. And if one part is honored... All the parts are glad. God has put this body together. Isn't that amazing? There is not a single person here this morning whom God did not bring. We, we say every week at church that we don't think it's an accident you're here. And part of what we mean by that is that we don't take responsibility for you actually showing up. We believe that that's something God did. God put it in you to be here today and not just to experience church, but to be church together, to, to do it together with the part that you were given to play. This is the metaphor that we often use around hope is that we don't think we're a cruise ship where all of us sit around on, lawn chair or on, on, on uh, lounge chairs waiting for people to serve us. We think of ourselves as a rowboat where every person in our church has an oar to pull and if we're not doing it together, then we're not going to get anywhere. That's the vision of the church. That's the biblical definition of church. All the members working together, doing their part, playing their role. And what was happening in Corinth at the time is they simply weren't doing that. They weren't getting along. And what was even worse is that the leaders of the church in Corinth thought that their role as leadership or, or whatever was some kind of hierarchical definition were better than other people serving in the church, trying to serve in the church. And Paul says that's not right. All of us have gifts. All of us have a part to play. And God, in His economy, has actually made the lesser seeming parts more important. All of us have a role, and until we identify those things and then love each other enough to allow each other to serve and to give to the church, to the life of the community of faith, that's what a loving community looks like. That's a successful church, how much we get along. And this comes straight from Jesus' teaching in John 13, 35, where Jesus says, the world will know you are my followers by how much you love each other. You know, it's where that song came from. They, 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 they will know we are Christians by our good doctrine. Nope. They will know we are Christians by our stance on certain social and political issues. They will know we are Christians by how we voted. They will know we are Christians by our worship style. No. Jesus tells us they will know you are my followers by how you love each other and the world around you. That that's the power of love. It's, it's that unifying factor that truly makes us a church working together for kingdom purposes. And so love exists in the context of the community of faith. And it also exists, secondly, in the context of the Spirit. 
that love exists in the context of the Holy Spirit. Part of the, the, the beauty of this idea in these three chapters in 1 Corinthians is that it does involve spiritual things, that, that the Corinthian church was trying to do Holy Spirit-type stuff. You know, they, they were praying for healing. They were praying for words of knowledge from God. They were praying, uh, speaking in tongues and trying to do these religious things, but, but they weren't doing it because they loved each other. They were doing it out of a sense of, of, of superiority. One of the things that was going on in Corinth at the time, so the city itself, Corinth, was more the, the capital of Greece than, than Athens was. Athens at the time was more like the college town, and Corinth, which isn't far away, was kind of like the New York City of the ancient world. It was where a lot of different cultures were intersecting, uh, different languages being spoken, and different people groups getting together, and it was exploding when population. And, and so when the church gets planted there, it's strategically there because it's going to reach the most people. But it also came with a lot of the problems that big cities have. Corinth struggled tremendously with substance abuse, and that started to affect the church, with prostitution, with violence, uh, with, with a great deal of, of, of racial division was happening in Corinth. And that stuff started creeping into the church. And so Paul writes this letter trying to combat that and saying, how could you allow the culture outside to influence the way that you treat each other in the church? Thinking somehow that, that your gifts are better than their gifts, or because you are uh, of this race that you're better than that race. And these are the problems that Paul is seeing in Corinth. And then that your spirituality is somehow more elevated than other people's. Because you, you, you think you can speak in tongues or pray for healing or do miracles, and then you're, you're letting that give you a false sense of superiority over the rest of the church. And so Paul writes about how love, true love, is in the context of the Spirit. In Galatians chapter 5, Paul writes another letter to the church in Galatia, and he says that love is actually a fruit of the Holy Spirit. Love is something that God gives you. A part of our, our, our physical life, this, this dailiness of, of being biologically alive, that doesn't contain the idea of love. Love is only something that the Holy Spirit can give you. Your relationship with God gives you the ability to love other people with the expectation that having that fruit of the Holy Spirit inside of you would allow you to love other people. It's something that God can give you as a spiritual reality, not just a human experience. And that, that means that, that, that the spiritual stuff that Paul writes about, we, we affirm, we believe in that. One of the reasons we have prayer partners every week by the cross and the reason we get together every Thursday night from 5.30 to 6.30 in our prayer chapel uh, is so we can pray for people and with people to actually see God heal people physically, to receive information, words of knowledge from God about real circumstances and things that are happening in our life. I love to be a part of those things because I love seeing what God can actually do through love. I don't do those. We don't do that prayer because we think it's just another religious exercise for us to be a part of. You know, all that religious stuff that was happening in Corinth at the time, they were doing because they thought it was out of the expectation of what it meant to be the church. What we're calling the, you know, the, the sermon series title for 1 Corinthians is Losing My Bad Religion. One of the worst things about religion, I think, is that we, we believe it's this list of activities that we are expected to perform and to do, and then we, 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 we divorce that from, from the love that God calls us to have for each other. So in Corinth, that looked like... Um, Speaking in tongues, if I could speak of all the language of earth and angels and I didn't love others, I would be a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I had the gift of prophecy and I understood all of God's secret plans and possessed all knowledge, if I had such faith that I could move mountains but I didn't love others, I would be nothing. Nothing. Religious experiences, practices without love 
is completely meaningless. And this comes, again, this comes out of Jesus' own teaching. When he's preaching on the Sermon on the Mount, uh, finishing it up in chapter 7 of the book of Matthew, this is what Jesus has to say uh, on the next slide from Matthew chapter 7. On judgment day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, we prophesied in your name. We cast out demons in your name and perform any miracles in your name, but I will reply, I never knew you. I never knew you. And I can see many of us getting to that point, meeting Jesus one day and saying things like, Lord, I, I, I gave so much money to the church in your name. I went to church every week because of you. And I, I sang in the choir or played in the band. I preached sermons in your name, Lord. And he will ask us on that day, but did you know me? Did you know that I loved you? Did you know that I wanted a relationship with you? I didn't want you just to perform for me, trying to gain my approval. I wanted to know who you were. I wanted to have a relationship with you. But you were busy doing religious things and not having a spiritual relationship with God. And this, 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 this notion of, of love as a spiritual reality and not just a human experience is key because how you think about love will actually be how you think about God. How you think about love will be how you think about God. In 1 John 4, 16, the Bible tells us that God is love. God is love. Self-contained love. The very definition of God itself is love. And the very definition of love is God. So, so just imagine for a second if, if your definition of love is uh, likes and dislikes. You think that love is just getting to know trivia about somebody else, learning what they're interested in and trying to, to mimic that or manufacture a relationship. What is that going to turn your relationship into God with or, or to? You're going to have a God who, who, you know, when you look through the Bible, you're going to see all of God's likes and dislikes, the things that God uh, commands and the things that he says not to do. And you're going to become a legalistic Christian that is only about performing and, and following rules and not a relationship, because you think that love is likes and dislikes, and that means that you serve a God who is only interested in your ability to make Him happy. But that's not God, because that's not love. Or imagine if your definition of love is just the absence of conflict. If, I, if we're not fighting, then we have a healthy relationship, and that's how you treat your relationship with God. Well, what kind of a God is that? If it's just conflict avoidance, then you're going to avoid God because you think that there's a potential for conflict from God, that He's going to be angry with you about stuff. And you know you're going to lose that fight, so you don't even want anything to do with God because you're just afraid of Him all the time. Because you think that He's going to get angry with you and be in conflict with you, but that's not God. That's not who God is because that's not what love really is. And so because God is love, we can actually look at this scripture reading from today through the lens of God as the definition of love itself and learn that God is patient and kind. God is not jealous or boastful or rude. God does not demand his own way. God wants a relationship with you out of love, but he will not make it happen. He will not force you to be in a relationship with him. He leaves that for you. God is not irritable. And thank God he keeps no record of being wronged. Psalms tells us that because of Jesus Christ, our sins are separated from ourselves as far as the east is from the west. If you believe in Jesus Christ, God does not remember your sins. God does not rejoice about injustice, but rejoices whenever the truth wins out. That, that to me is some good theology. Theology literally from the Greek theos meaning God and logos meaning words Words about God is what theology is. These are some great words about the God we serve. 
the God who is love. And, and, and for us to, to operate in life as though our relationship with God is somehow this autopilot living day after day, repetitively going through the motions and doing religious practices and religious things, that misses out on, on the immense definition of love that we see in the Bible displayed through the activity of Jesus Christ that is powerful, that, that the love of God is not some cute poem. It's not even nice. The love that God has for us is dangerous, is powerful. It's that Romans 5, 8 kind of love that says that God loved you so much, He sent Jesus Christ into the world, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That God's love is so powerful, it leads Him to the cross to sacrifice Himself for you to be in a relationship forever. That is power. Not poetry, but power. And if that's what you're missing about what love really is and what a relationship with God can really mean and look like in your life, you need to get a different perspective on true love. And, and thankfully, that was something that I was given in 2010. My wife and I went to Thailand in 2010 um, to, to experience mission with, uh, with some missions partners there for a few weeks. We were actually, I was on staff with the church at the time um, in Aurora, Illinois, where the shooting happened just on Friday, the mass shooting there. And so I've been talking to and praying with a lot of my friends who are still in Aurora. Um, but, and the church where I was serving was just down the street from where that happened. And we went to Thailand to, to experience their mission over there. And um, you might have heard me talk about this maybe last year, but uh, we spent some time in the rural northern part of Thailand where Bible translation and church planting is a big part of the missionary activity there. But then we also spent time in the city of Bangkok with a mission agency called The Well. And their sole missional purpose in Bangkok is to engage with women who have been a part of sex trafficking and prostitution and to help get them out of that life into a relationship with Jesus Christ. Uh, prostitution is technically illegal in Thailand, but it generates over $5 billion a year in tourism income for the country. So they'd completely overlook it, and it's just out in the open all the time. And so these different missionary agencies engage with these women who, who have been trapped in this life, victims of, of sexual trafficking and prostitution, to try and show them what love really looks like. And the way they do that, um, they go into a brothel or a bar, and, and this sounds kind of rough, but they actually pay the price for a woman for the evening, but then go to a coffee shop or a bowling alley just to have a conversation with them to affirm their human dignity, to, to, to let them know that, that they're, they're a person who, who is worth conversation and, and, and worth being spoken to in a loving way. And so my wife and I did this. We, we went into a brothel in Bangkok um, one night, and we just wanted to have conversations. And, and so she and I sat down with a, a young lady, and we talked to her, uh, bought some sodas, and just sat there talking about her life. Who are you, and where did you come from, and, and what are your dreams and your hopes for the future, and what are the things that, that you hope for? Who are you as a person? And, and as we began talking with her, we learned that she actually wasn't from there. She wasn't from Bangkok, that she actually was from the rural part of Thailand where we had just been days before, and her family owned a farm. But the farm hadn't performed very well that year, so she came to Bangkok to make some money. And she started off as a hairdresser, but even that wasn't paying the bills, and so that led her into the life of prostitution where she spent, she gave every penny that she earned back to her family who was living in the farm. And they didn't know what she was doing, and she didn't want to be there. She just wanted to go home. But that was all she could do to earn the money to send home because her family was living in poverty. And, and when you walk around the streets of Bangkok at night in these areas and you talk to these women who are trapped in this life, you can actually feel the darkness around you 
It's, it's, it's tangible. You can feel something differently spiritual and evil that's, that's at work, keeping people captive. And, that, and when we sing songs at church about how God, we sang them this morning, how God's love is fierce and God's love breaks the powers of darkness, for them that's not just poetry, that's real, that's power. That's the active power of the Holy Spirit breaking people's chains of captivity and bringing them out into new life, into love with Jesus Christ. And we miss that here. We don't get to see that that often. But it's not far. You don't have to leave the city of Des Moines to to, to find sex trafficking. It's here. Or to see poverty. Or to see real hunger. To see people being ignored and dismissed. That's here too. The, the power of evil is at work in our society, and the love of Christ is the only thing that can overcome it, that powerful kind of love. And it's not, it's not, it's not a safe kind of love. It's not a cute kind of love. When, when, G, uh, when, when C.S. Lewis was writing his book, the, the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, which is a book for kids, uh, he, he writes this book about uh, how Aslan, this lion, is an allegorical figure for Jesus Christ, and, and Susan, another character in the book, is about to be introduced to Aslan for the very first time, and she asks one of the characters, is he safe? Is this lion safe? Is Jesus Christ safe? And the character replies, no, he is not safe. Jesus Christ is not safe. He is dangerous, but he is good, is the rest of the line. Our, our, the love of Christ is so dangerous because it can wreck the darkness in this world. It can overcome captivity. It can overcome evil. It's the only weapon we have to combat these things in our world that are keeping people in chains. And so I want to show you one more clip. This time it's from a documentary called Furious Love. And it's a, a filmmaker in Chicago who went all around the world documenting cases where God's love is actively at work fighting against things like drug addiction and abuse and, and places where people are sick and demon-possessed. And so this documentary follows these things. And they went into Bangkok and they interviewed a ministry. It's not the well that I was with, but there are a bunch of these ministries in Bangkok working on the same problem because it's a huge problem and the church needs to get engaged. And so they, they followed this ministry and got testimonies from some of the young women who uh, were set free because of the love of Christ. So let's watch this together. Annie Dieselberg and her husband Jeff run a ministry called Nightlight. They've set up shop in the heart of Bangkok and worked tirelessly to get women out of the sex trade and into a job making jewelry. The goal is to bring back dignity to women who are literally raped for a living. Of course, when God's love gets a hold of them, they get a lot more than just dignity. We go into work at 5 o'clock and we get off work at 2 in the morning. I'd have to dress um, uh, very seductively. And a foreigner would come in and he would point to me and say, I want to sit with her. And he would buy me a drink. The powers of darkness rage blatantly here. I call it, you know, Disneyland for the spirit world. And we would talk and if he liked, then he would take me away, um, either for short time or long time. But because of that, then, the love of Christ rages even more furiously, blatantly against those powers to win people over. So, you know, you see the battle lived out um, before you. Later, I interviewed my friend, Will Hart, who had accompanied us on this journey. 
and he spelled out what I was finally beginning to understand. People are hurt, you know, and they're looking for love, you know, and that's where a lot of this stuff stems from. And when we were out on the streets last night, nights before, it's the same story all the time. They're not looking for, you know, they're not looking for much. They just want to be acknowledged by somebody else. They want to feel that touch, that presence. The church for so long has her head in the sand. See no evil, hear no evil, <laughs> touch no evil, and we won't be evil, kind of, you know, I think is kind of the idea. And and yet so much pain and so much suffering is going on all around that the church is, is not even aware of. And God wants the church to be out there loving, to, to be his hands, his feet, his heart. I want to say thank you, God. That God has redeemed the life of this one woman. This woman who didn't feel like she had any value in life. That God, God looked at me and saw my value. And God gave me love that I never had from a mother and father before. I did my thesis on uh, spiritual warfare. And I studied for a long time uh, the weapons of our warfare. Because traditionally they say, you know, the word of God, the blood of Christ, the word of our testament, which is all true. Very true. But I've came to the, come to the conclusion after a long time of study, the greatest weapon we have against the devil is love. When God wanted to redeem a world that had come into the hands of Satan, he did not use spiritual warfare, he used love. And there is one weapon the devil cannot stand, and it's the weapon of just simple, pure love. So it might be this morning that you feel like your relationship with God and your spiritual life is boring, repetitive, that it's the same thing over and over again. Or maybe it's that you feel you're, you're doing religious activities, trying to please God, when he's actually saying, I'm pleased by you, I love you, I gave my life for you, now go and share that love with other people. I think that's the cure for, for a spiritual life that's become stagnant, is actually to start giving away the love that God has given you in, in some powerful and maybe even dangerous ways. You will not be bored in your spiritual life if you are interacting with the places in this world and the people in this world who are unloved and in need of God's power to draw them out of darkness. You will never be bored in that kind of spiritual environment. And that's what God is calling all of us into. Again, the church is the place where your gifts, the things that God has given you, are required to do the ministry as the body of Christ to do the loving things together as a team, as a community. You don't have to do it on your own. Let's do it together to impact the world around us for the love of God and the expansion of his kingdom.